Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hey everybody, you may have recently started hearing a little blurb about Hopful Media at the start of each episode, before the ads. There's a full announcement just after episode 83, but I wanted to slip this message into the backlog so you'd know what was going on. Absolutely nothing of substance has changed, and History of Persia is just as independent as ever. The H-O-P in Hopful is literally my acronym for History of Persia. This is just a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff for building a brand to cover potential future projects. If and when that happens, you'll hear about it in this feed first. Thanks for listening! Hello everyone, this episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's largest repository of audiobooks with hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from. In addition to audiobooks, they have numerous Audible originals, which are shorts that you just can't find anywhere else, and by shorts I mean a couple of hours. They also have access to audio courses and lots of other audio entertainment through their platform. If you go to 
audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to a free 30-day trial that comes with one credit and access to two Audible Originals. That credit is good for any book or audio lecture in their catalog. If you decide to continue with your subscription, you'll get that same single credit and two Audible Originals every single month. As always with these Audible ads, I like to recommend something that I am listening to or have listened to, and today I'd like to point out the Great Courses series. These are a series of audio lectures on all sorts of things. Science, philosophy, literature, history, of course. I'm currently listening to World Mythologies, which is a great dive into not just the classics of Greece and Rome and ancient Egypt, but also places like ancient Mesopotamia, Native American cultures, China, and India. It's a really great series and very informative. I highly recommend checking it out. I think they even have one on ancient Persia. If that piques your interest, go to audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia or follow the link in the episode description. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 35, The Empire Strikes Back. Because, come on, I had to use the original title outright at some point, and this is really the place to do it. Look, Dan Carlin can compare Xerxes to Darth Vader all he wants, but let's take a step back and look at the Ionian Revolt as it sits in 495 BCE. Aristagoras of Miletus rallied all of the Greek cities of Anatolia around Miletus and the Ionians following a failed siege of Naxos. For a brief moment, he allied with Athens and burned Sardis to the ground, only for the Persian reprisal to be so absolute that Athens abandoned the cause. Nevertheless, Greek cities across Persian Anatolia joined, and the Persians launched a four-part counter-assault. Three campaigns were launched on the mainland, and the last episode covered the reconquest of Cyprus. At the end of that episode, the Persians were regrouping to prepare for the next stage of the offensive. In other words, the unseen emperor, Darius, is sitting far away, communicating only through messages, while his massive army is commanded by a subordinate lord of the royal house and is preparing to crush a rebel alliance. Now... In this episode, the army of the Empire is preparing to launch a conclusive attack on the rebel base of Hoth, er, Miletus. On one hand, this is a shocking change in tactics. Up to this point, it seems like the Persians have been working to attack the Greeks, the Yona as they called them, from their edges and work their way into Miletus at the center. That was clearly the tactic employed by Artifernes and Otanes in northern Ionia, and seems to fit with the offensive launched by Dorises and Himaeus as well. But there's another way to look at things. Everything we've discussed up to this point was a simple containment procedure meant to halt the rapidly spreading coastal infection. What started as Aristagoras's selfish panic over debts incurred while besieging Naxos in 499 
quickly escalated to the abolition of tyrants, the institution of democracy, revolt against Persia, and the reinvention of the Ionian League in 498. By the end of that year, the itch for rebellion had spread up the coast and out to sea. The Greek cities of Aeolus and the Propontis joined as far as Byzantion and as far as nearby islands like Samos and Lesbos. Not only that, but it was beginning to jump over cultural boundaries. Greco-Phrygian Caria and the Greco-Phoenician island of Cyprus, as well as indigenous Phrygian people in the Troad, had all gone into revolt by 497. These revolts were spreading quickly, and exceeding their original Greek context. That had the potential to threaten the whole Western Empire. Phoenicia and the Levant generally remained loyal all through Achaemenid history. The Greeks had fortunately alienated the Lydians when they burned Sardis, including the temple of the goddess Sibylle. But the continued spread of revolt put a lot in jeopardy. There were still more Greek cities on the northern coast of Anatolia that were beginning to agitate in satrapies like Cappadocia and Armenia, which had gone so far untouched. The loss of the Greek coasts and islands cut the Persians off from their already unstable control of Thrace and Macedon in Europe. The loss of Cyprus threatened to sever Persian ties with Egypt less than ten years after reasserting control of the two lands from the rebel pharaoh Petubastet. The Persians may have had the capability to drive a huge wedge into the center of this revolt and crush Miletus between a Persian army and a Phoenician navy. But ultimately, it was much more important to contain the revolt at the periphery and keep places like Egypt or Cappadocia in line. And of course, we should not forget that Darius is still in charge. Even if he was sitting back in the capitals at Susa or Babylon receiving reports, this was still the king who came to power by winning a gargantuan, many-faceted civil war against rebelling territories while directing all of the operations from Babylon and Ecbatana. If anything, Darius was probably in his element here. Despite their best efforts, the Persians would not manage to fully limit these events to Anatolia and Cyprus. But that wasn't entirely clear yet. Satrap Artaphernes recalled the three Persian land armies either to Sardis, as Herodotus implies, or more likely to some staging ground on the eastern border of Ionia. As Herodotus portrays it, he was now acting as the high commander for the whole Persian military apparatus in this war, which makes sense given that he was both the satrap and brother to King Darius. Presumably, General Antonis from the earlier campaigns was still one of his commanders, and Herodotus tells us that there were additional Persian generals, but doesn't give names. The most likely explanation is that the Greeks simply didn't know which Persian generals were present. It's likely, if entirely speculative, that some of the famous commanders of the next stages of the Yona Wars were among them, up-and-coming commanders like Mardonius or Dotus, who would feature prominently in the coming campaigns. For now, though, these are just names to plant in your heads. They will become important very soon. Now, the Persian army is gathering, preparing for an assault, 
in late 495 or maybe early 494. Meanwhile, the fleet is doing the same thing. They conscripted some Cypriots after the events of the last episode, and probably sailed back to their base in Cilicia to prepare for the next stage of the war. The plan was bold, a direct strike on Miletus itself and the heart of this revolt. The land army would march in and besiege the city from the east, presumably expecting to overwhelm any Ionian army by sheer numbers. Meanwhile, the fleet would sail up the coast and besiege the coastal city from the west by way of the Aegean Sea. This was not going to be a surprise attack. It's just not possible to gather a massive army and a massive fleet and not have your goals identified. The few times such massive invasions have successfully been kept secret are considered military marvels for a reason. So the Ionians were planning for this. They were gathering an army to defend Miletus from the army on the land side. But more importantly, they were preparing for a naval confrontation. For the last five years, the Greek advantage had been their access to naval superiority in the Aegean. They could hope to outlast Persian sieges because the Persians could not successfully blockade their ports. With Cyprus once again subject to the King of Kings, and a Persian fleet bearing down on them, the Greeks needed to break the Persian fleet quickly to relieve Miletus or risk losing the city. To that end, the Ionians gathered everyone they had left, ships from cities all along the coast of the mainland and the major islands just off that coast had been subject to the Persians. These were places I've mentioned previously, islands like Lesbos, Chios, and Samos. Once the seat of the powerful Polycrates and now just another rebellious Ionian territory. And mainland cities that joined the Milesian navy. They each sent varying numbers of triremes, complete with rowers and marines to crew them, and they all gathered at a small island called Lade, which sits just off the Miletus coastline. In total, the Ionian fleet was comprised of 80 ships from Miletus itself, a dozen from Priene, 17 from Teos, 70 from Lesbos, 60 from Samos, 8 from Erythrae, a massive 100 ships from the island of Chios, and just three from Myos and Phokia, a total of 353 ships in all. Usually, I follow the rest of all historians for the past few centuries and urge caution while talking about Herodotus's numbers. But, these are pretty specific figures, and while it's a large fleet, it's not out of the realm of possibility if nine cities were pulling their collective resources for a major stand against a much stronger opponent. Herodotus lived a couple generations later, but close enough to the events and in the right parts of the Greek world that he would have had access to actual records and people from these events. It's possible that 353 is the product of numerology, the belief that specific numbers have mystical properties. I personally have no specific knowledge of numerology to say whether or not it would apply here, but if it does, 353 is probably still not that far off. The Persian figure, given by Herodotus, is 600 ships. This seems a little large, 
but again, not ridiculously so. Many of our Greco-Roman sources for Persian history associate multiples of 300 with Persian fleets. It seems from those sources that the Persian fleet operated in a basic unit of 30 ships, and each fleet consisted of 300 or so ships. The basic idea is that there were supposed to be two full fleets in the Mediterranean, and both were honing in on Miletus. How optimistic those numbers were when the Empire wasn't actively at war in the Aegean is hard to say. In the rare peacetime, there were probably fewer ships in the total fleet. With this massive assemblage of soldiers and commanders from most of the remaining rebel centers all gathered in one place, Artaphernes and the Persians sought to replicate the successful strategy employed at Cypriot Salamis. They tried to get a few cities to defect and retreat at the outset of the battle. To do this, they sent in the tyrants. If you remember back in episode 31 and the Naxos incident, when the Ionians all went into revolt, a key component of that was abolishing their tyrannies. The Greek autocrats, supported by the Persian government, were all deposed and sent into exile. Unsurprisingly, they all fled to Sardis and had been hanging around with Artaphernes, waiting for their chance to return to power. Well, now Artaphernes gave them that chance. He sent them back to their former subjects gathered at Miletus with a message. If you abandon this rebellion, leave Miletus to this fate, and accept us back as your overlords, the Persians will leave our cities unharmed. And like any good ultimatum, it came with a threat. Continue to fight for independence against the Persians, and your soldiers will be taken as slaves, your sons will be castrated to become eunuch servants, and your daughters and wives will be sent into exile in Bactria. Your land will be taken and foreigners will settle in Ionia. The thing is, they rebelled to get rid of all of these tyrants in the first place, and even if the Persians didn't exact terrible vengeance on their city, there was a chance that the tyrants would. So the Ionian rebels universally said no, and told their tyrants or their messengers to go away. Meanwhile, a commander from the city of Phokia had been made general, or I guess admiral, of the 353 Ionian ships. This man was Dionysius of Phokia, and his men hated him. He was, according to Herodotus, a cruel and demanding taskmaster. He demanded absolute obedience to his commands, drilled the fleets in long, hard exercises every single day. He made the rowers practice breaking through enemy lines of ships and staged mock battles between his marines on the decks of those ships, over and over and over again. After a hard morning and afternoon, the ships anchored off of Lade, and he put his sailors to work on land, probably maintaining equipment and organizing their camps. Now, some of you with modern military experience, or even those of you who participated in some more rigorous Boy Scout troops, might be thinking that this doesn't sound ridiculous. Strip away Herodotus's critical language, and Dionysius of Phokia sounds like basically any naval commander in modern history. 
He ran a type- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. ...ship and expected results from disciplined men. To a modern observer... Those seem like pretty tame expectations for a commander to have, especially with the looming threat of a massive attack. But it was entirely antithetical to the Greek way of doing things. Ancient Greek militaries were militias. Local men were called up whenever the army was needed. They bought their own equipment or sought work on a ship that paid and served in that role until the end of the campaign season, then just went back to their day jobs. Outside of that singular mission, training was minimal, if it existed at all. Outside of Sparta, the Ionian rebels were probably the closest thing the Greek world had to a professional army in 494 BCE. Four years of continuous campaigning meant that they had a force of experienced veterans with years of practice in some of their units. That was cutting edge for the time and place. Dionysius's drill sergeant attitude was off the cutting edge. It caught them completely off guard and was more than the troops could stand. According to Herodotus, they refused to obey orders after just one week. Dionysius had to give a speech explaining his reasoning to them and reminded them what they were fighting for, and they went back to work. For another week, at which point Herodotus has this excellent passage, and I'll just read it. Since the Ionians were unaccustomed to such hard labor, and were worn out by both their exertions and the sun, they spoke to one another as follows. What divine power have we offended that we must suffer this way? We have lost our wits and have sailed away from our senses in committing ourselves to this Phocian braggart. 
He provides only three ships, and yet we entrust ourselves to his command? And after he enlisted us, he has insulted and injured us so severely that we will never recover. Many of us have fallen ill, and many more of us are likely to do so as well. We would be better off suffering anything rather than these evils, even to endure future slavery, whatever that may be like would be better than continue as we are at present. Come on, then. Let's not follow his orders any longer. And as soon as they had spoken to this effect, no one would obey Dionysius any longer. And, as though they were an army, they pitched tents on the land and remained in their shade, refusing to board the ships or to practice their maneuvers. End quote. So after just two weeks of fairly standard naval training in preparation for the fight of their lives, the Ionian sailors went on strike. Not exactly a great sign for team morale on the night of the big game. This insubordination played right into Persian hands. The contingent from Samos, one of the largest with their 60 ships, sent word to their former tyrant, a guy by the name of Iaches. They saw that this was going to be an utter disaster if they tried to fight the Persians on the open sea, and wanted to know if that offer to defect was uh, maybe still available. Probably very excited to seize the advantage and get his job back, Iaches informed his past and future subjects that of course the offer was still on the table, unaltered at that. The Samians made plans to sail out with the rest of the fleet when the battle came, but then abandoned them just before the fighting started. The timeline here isn't entirely clear, but it seems like a few days or weeks passed, and then the Persian fleet arrived off the Ionian coast, making their way toward Miletus and Laude, just as everyone had planned and expected. The Persian army, of course, approached the city by land, and put it to siege. In his build-up to the naval confrontation, Herodotus offers this bizarre flow of details about the Ionian fleet and a speech given to the rebel soldiers. Right after listing all of the ships from all of the cities, he says, The sum of all of these together was 353 triremes. These were the Ionian ships. The barbarian fleet numbered 600 ships. When it arrived at Miletus, where the Persian army was also stationed, and the Persian generals learned how large the Ionian fleet was, they became frightened. That they would be unable to prevail over it, and that having thus failed to become the masters of the sea, they would be unable to capture Miletus, and would thus be subject to punishment by Darius. Um... Uh, excuse me, Herodotus? Upon seeing that the Ionian fleet was almost half the size of their own force, the Persians were terrified by how large it was? That seems unlikely, to say the least. And rightly, the Persians faced no trouble when they faced the rebel fleet, because in addition to their massive numerical advantage, the Ionians completely fell apart. The Persian fleet primarily composed of Phoenicians with Egyptian, Cypriot, and Cilician complements, 
approached their Greek opponents just as they had planned. 49 of the 60 ships from Samos raised sails and went home without warning. Crucially, these ships were positioned on the western wing of the Greek formation, and suddenly exposed the flank of the ships from Lesbos, which had previously been comfortably protected on their western side. The lesbian sailors panicked, and apparently all 70 of their ships up and abandoned the cause. So now the Ionian force was down to just 234 ships against the two full Persian fleets. The 100 ships and crews from Chios stepped up to try and fill the gap, but there was nothing doing. They were too severely outmanned. They led the way from the center of the old formation and performed the breakthrough maneuver that they had practiced under Dionysius. But instead of using that to shatter the Persian line and rout the enemy, they just created an escape route. More than half of the Chian ships were taken or sunk by the Persians, and the remaining Greeks broke through the Persian formation and retreated to their hometowns. Herodotus doesn't tell us what the survivors from Miletus did next, but eventually they ended up on Samos. Meanwhile, on land, the Persians had been besieging Miletus for a while now, and there was now a naval blockade cutting them off from any outside help. Their allies' fleets had abandoned them, and any of their own navy that had survived was probably stuck outside the Persian blockade. The Milesians held out for as long as possible, for months on end. Herodotus says that the Persians employed every siege engine they could build, and attempted to dig tunnels under the city walls before Miletus finally capitulated. The Persians finally broke into the city and sacked it. To the south, they ransacked, burned, and plundered the Temple of Apollo at Didyma, the same temple where an oracle had been bribed by Cyrus the Great to secure the surrender of the rebel tax collector Pactuas decades earlier. The people of Miletus were captured and deported by the Persian army. Their city and possessions ransacked by the Persians, many of the Milesians, probably most of the soldiers and their families, were forced to march far from the Western Empire to the Imperial Heartland. Herodotus says that they first were sent to Susa, but more often than not, that's just Greek shorthand for any Persian capital, and it could be any of them. From the capital, they were sent and settled a city called Ampe on the Persian Gulf, but probably not until after the men had been used as a forced labor force at Persepolis. I've mentioned such deportations before. When Harpagus first conquered the Ionian city of Priene for Cyrus the Great, and when Arsimes, the satrap of Egypt, conquered Cyrenaica for Darius. Other Greeks had been deported and sent to the east. The ultimate fate of the Prianians is unknown to us, but the Cyrenaean deportees were ultimately settled in Bactria, beginning a long history of Greek connections to that most distant point in their known world. This was a tactic that dates back much earlier to the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, which deported many defeated rebels from all over their empires, most famously including the Israelites 
and Judah Heights. So, Miletus was defeated, and its people in exile in a far-off land. But the city itself, and probably many of the poorer inhabitants, were still there. The surrounding land was claimed by the Persians themselves, according to Herodotus, which probably means that it was seized and redistributed to military commanders and satrapal officials by Artaphernes for their personal estates, while the city itself was given over to new settlers from another Greek city. Evidently, the Carian city of Pedasus had either remained loyal or willingly betrayed the other rebels in Caria, because Miletus was given to the Pedassians as a reward in 493 BCE. The aftermath of the battles of Miletus and Laude was tragic for many of the Greek combatants, not just the Milesians. The Chians, who had brought the largest fleet, but also lost more than half of it, suffered further losses after the battle. The few ships that were still seaworthy sailed home to Chios, but most of the surviving ships were so badly damaged that they had to come ashore just off Miletus at the city of Macale. From there, the sailors and soldiers made their way to Ephesus. The thing is, the Ephesians didn't know they were coming. So when a ragged armed band turned up outside of the city, they thought it was some kind of bandit army and attacked. The worn and ragged Chian survivors were wiped out by the confused Ephesians. Meanwhile, Dionysius of Phokia fared rather well, if in exile. His three ships actually captured three other Persian ships during the Battle of Laude, bringing his total in the wake of the fighting up to six. But he didn't return home to Phokia. He knew that as admiral of the rebel fleet, the Persians would want his head. Instead, he turned the ship south and became a pirate, preying on merchants along the Phoenician coast. The defeated admiral continued this until he had raised enough funds to head west to Sicily. Once there, Dionysius continued his piracy as a mercenary or kind of ancient privateer, I guess, in service to the Greek cities there. In exchange for their support, he preyed on the Carthaginian and Italian shipping in the region. The Samian rebels made similar plans. The 49 ships that had sided with the Persians and abandoned the fleet at Laude were admonished by their government and a monument was constructed to honor the 11 crews that had fought to the bitter end. Despite that, once Miletus fell, they knew the end was coming, and Iaces would return to rule as tyrant. The rebel leaders, all those who refused to be ruled by the Persians, and a large contingent of Milesian refugees who had fled the Persian wrath, packed up and sailed to Sicily as well. They accepted an invitation from the Greek city of Region to depose their rivals in another Greek city called Zonkle. The Zonklian army and king were attacking another neighboring city when the Samians arrived, so Ionian veterans from Samos stormed the undefended city. The Zanklians rushed back and got their allies from a third Greek city called Gela, 
But the Galen king betrayed the Zanklians, captured their king and leadership, and called off the attack in exchange for most of the plunder from Zankle. A good portion of the population was also sold as slaves. The Samians agreed to the terms and became the new rulers of Zankle, while the former Zanklian king fled east and actually made his home as a king in exile in the court of Darius the Great, which was rapidly becoming the trendy retirement plan for deposed Greek leaders across the Mediterranean. While defeated Ionian rebels were running amok all over the Mediterranean Sea, the Persians were carrying out mop-up operations back in Anatolia. The few remaining Ionian cities and most of Caria surrendered without a fight. According to Herodotus, the few that did make their last stand against the Persians were defeated easily and didn't involve any events worth noting. Thus, in 494 or early 493, most of the rebel cities of the Anatolian coast were once again ruled by tyrants in the name of Darius, great king, king of kings, etc., etc. By all logic and reason, that should have been the end of it, and yet the war goes on. Despite Persian victory over the city and its allies, Miletus still had one more wild card to throw at their Persian rulers. The deposed tyrant Histius? Apparently, Susa is in left field, because unexpectedly, Histius stepped up to continue the fight after the fall of his former city. And that is where we will pick up next time the sixth part of this ongoing Greek catastrophe. Until then, if you want more information about the podcast, you can find it at historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll also find my bibliography and the Achaemenid family trees down to the children of Darius, as well as the support page where you can see all of the ways you can support the podcast financially, including Patreon. If you want to subscribe to Patreon to get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, or anything else, you can go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can get many of the same benefits if you sign up for premium content on the new app Lyceum, which offers an awesome selection of education podcasts. However, the best way to support the show, as always, is to recommend it to friends and tell other people about it. So leave a review on the platform of your choice. There are tons of them now. And share it on social media. On Twitter, I am at History of Persia. And on Facebook and Instagram, it's the History of Persia podcast. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.